like I was saying about the man. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I mean, basically, we were going to get into it one way or another. Um, Let's go! So first off, uh-huh. I read your name when you when you gave me the pronunciation as Ayaze. And then I heard you say your own name on a clip in Instagram and heard Ayize. Yep. So could you please correct me? <laughs> Ayize. But... Ayize. So it's Ayize. I, ye, like all ye men. Oh. oh, okay. The Y-E, I wasn't thinking old English. I was Same. thinking like... Same. <laughs> like French or something. Like, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. as my mom she did it to me <laughs> no that's pretty i like it i think i like that better i just didn't want to mess it up sounds good yeah. okay just so you know when i see your name i see renee candy because i'm just oh so i'm always like her name candy that's not oh no it's not candy that's close enough <laughs> <laughs> yeah kennedy i mean people usually say like Kennedy and then when I say Kennedy people usually spell it like Kennedy so <laughs> it's whatever it's whatever people want to call me that's how I feel yeah. <laughs> yeah but we can get into it um I can start off with the first half of your bio uh we cut it into two halves because it was very impressive and we didn't want to gloss over too much I, which, yeah. Where did you get it from? I got like eight different bios flying around out there. Uh, we we stole it from your website. So, yeah, you know. Mostly off your website. Wh- which website? You have uh, the one with your books. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's the yeah. right one. And then I have like my plant medicine sort of therapy. Other What? You do plant medicine therapy? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely get into that. <laughs> I'll be okay. look, I'm so glad this is happening because like I totally agree to this because you guys sounded cool. And then I was like, what am I doing? Like, why are they interviewing me? Because like um Justin was saying, I got a book coming out this week. Um, or maybe that was you and I'm sorry. Um, and so like I thought it was it was on that, but then like there's a lot of black people that like want to talk to me about plant medicine and like black people in plant medicine so I was like I don't know what I'm doing but I'm just gonna show up so hey that means you (laughs) can talk about all of it all right so I'll get into your bio um Isaiah Jamal Everett calls the Bay Area his home despite being born in New York City he holds a master's in divinity a master's in clinical psychology and a master's in fine arts creative writing Jamal Everett has worked as a bartender, a translator, a drug and alcohol counselor, a stand-up comedian, a script doctor, a ghostwriter, a high school dean, a college professor, and for a brief time, distiller of spirits. And this is just the first half of your biography, and we're just going to stop here and like, <laughs> ooh, okay. <laughs> Um, so you see, you've been in so many spaces and of course our favorite stand-up comedian. No, I'm just joking. Um, all of it is so cool. I don't know, maybe drug and alcohol counselor, but like, first off, just like, how did you get into all of this stuff? Because like, you're not like 
80, you know, like, I think like, I'm like, when I have my career goals of like, how many things I want to do before I die, like, I would say like, maybe like half of this list, and then I'm good. (laughs) You're like, kind of at the like apex of everything. So which is like, so could you just, yeah, how did you get into all of this stuff? And do you sleep? Yeah, I sleep. And sleep is good. It's important. Eight hours, if I can. Um, <laughs> I, like, I like my sleep. No, I mean, it's struggle bus. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's, um, you know, pretty much not taking money from anybody else from the time I was on 14, 15 on. And just, like, what'll get me fed, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, what'll, what can I do that, that where's the way that I can maximize like my skills to the best of my ability you know for the longest time I said I had soft skills you know um inter- interaction you know talking to people you know mm-hmm. getting people to chill out you know stuff like that so that was kind of what I caked off of and then um you know started getting to be a little more strategic and being like okay what do I actually want to do and the thing that I've like actually wanted to do in my entire life is to write you know, like I just want to write. I want to, I want, it's still a dream of mine. I just want to, I want to write the X-Men comic book. You know what I mean? I just want like four or five years on the X-Men, just fucking blowing it out of the water. Um, and so like, it was like, okay, well, how, what steps can I take to get closer to that? And then there's just like, like I, I was telling my people like, you know, don't get good at something you don't like. Mm. like you can get paid very well for doing some shit that you don't like that you're good at and then mm. you've got these golden handcuffs so in a few of those situations like in a few of those jobs that was the issue it wasn't that I loved them it was just that I was I was good at it mm. like, well if you're good at it and no one else is paying you for the other things that you like to do mm-hmm. get that money. <laughs> so which of those jobs were passion jobs and which of those jobs were paid the money. All right, you got to go one by one. I can't even remember them all right now. Okay, right. Okay. So we'll start with bartender, translator, and then drug and alcohol counselor. Uh, bartender, uh, money. Um, translator, money. Uh, no, yeah, shmoney. It was shmoney. I was in Morocco. Um, oh, yeah. Um, my my boys had a um had a touring company. And they like needed, um, they needed someone who spoke English well for the American tourists. So I got to travel around Morocco for free, you know, saying shit that they would say to me in broken English or, you know, Kamazir or Arabic. And then I'd be like, okay, this is what they're saying. Uh, so that was fun. It was fun. It was cool. It was a good time. Oh, wow. Um, drug and alcohol counselor started out as money and ended up being passion. Um, and it was like the last thing I wanted to do. Cause like mm. my mom was like, my mom like worked for ambulatory detox in Harlem hospital in New York from like time I was a kid to like when I left home. So like, I, if I knew one, that's like, you know, that's the thing that, you know, right. Like I can talk to people on drugs, like mm. if that's not a, you know, heroin crack, you know, PCP mm. doesn't matter. I'm like, I'm cool whatever. Like, I'm not going to trip out on this. Um, mm. So it started out like that, but then like seeing the impact that I could actually make, um, that's when I was like, no, this actually matters. This actually matters to me. 
so and then like from there like that passion is that kind of what led to the more like uh um like looking into like you know plant medicinal therapies and stuff like that or is that at all related yeah totally I mean because it's for me it was all about helping people right mm -hmm. and like you know when I first started I was working at a 12-step like a spot that had like harm reduction and 12 not harm reduction sorry uh behavior modification you know mm -hmm. uh, 12 step kind of like down the line kind of rigid like you sit like this you do like this you be like this you do like this and that'll keep you clean and sober and healthy and da 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 and I bought in I was like okay that's what they said and you know they've been doing this shit for 30 years and da 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 you look at the outcome studies and that's like 12 percent success rate 10 percent success and I was like, oh, so nah, dude. Like, I don't know if like the damage and rupture being done to this community is worth 10 to 12%. Like you gotta go higher than like, if you if you telling me I gotta tell parents that they gotta kick their kids out of the house for tough love, you gotta clean more than like, you know, one in 10 of these kids is gonna make it. Like I can't back that up. And so, and at the same time in the Bay Area, we started shifting like all these agencies started shifting more towards harm reduction which basically says like you can reduce the amount of harm associated with substance use mm -hmm. without necessarily reducing the substance use mm -hmm. right? so like you know needle exchange is kind of like what most people think of when they think of harm reduction but it's also condoms <laughs> you know it's mm -hmm. also toothbrush and toothpaste for folks it's also tampons and pads right mm -hmm. it's also like giving people housing it's also like you know child care right like all these different things can be harm reduction so once I was like oh you know because you start thinking about it and you're like well how is it all these senators and these congressmen and these like local people can be sitting in their houses getting drunk to the cows come home popping more pills than I have names for and yet they're not considered a substance using population. But mm. these cats just don't have stable housing, don't have access to clean drugs. They're seen as the menace. Like what mm -hmm. is that about? And I'm like, okay, so maybe it's actually not about the substance use. Mm. And maybe it's about all, some of the other shit. Maybe if we cover some of the other shit, then the substance use either decreases on its own which happens, or isn't a problem, mm -hmm. right? If you got clean heroin and you're shooting up two times a day and you shoot up before you go to work and you carry on your nine to five and you have your relationships with everybody and everything's cool. And then you come home and you shoot up when you get home and you don't fuck with anybody. I don't care if you do heroin. Mm -hmm. like if you don't want to do heroin anymore at that point we can have that conversation but it's no longer a social problem mm. you know what I'm saying mm -hmm. why do you think people are so uncomfortable with hearing the idea of you know someone just being able to just do drugs for the sake of doing drugs because I think we make up you know all these good and valid excuses like okay we say like well drugs are medicine we know marijuana is medicine or drugs are a way to cope, or, you know, people need them. But, like, the idea of somebody just recreationally doing something for the fun of doing it, why is that a problem? Why is that something that we've been taught to, like, 
police ourselves about. Oh, it's, it's not a problem. We know it's not a problem. Because if it was a problem, if the drugs were the problem, we wouldn't have all manner of beer and alcohol at every sporting event. That's mm-hmm. alcohol, right? We know that people can use substances recreationally. My puppy is being weird over here. So don't worry oh. about it. Um, the recreation is not a problem it's the substance that's a problem and here's the issue every single substance that we got has some racial connotation connected with it Mm -hmm. right that Mm -hmm. makes us think that this is the problem right so alcohol you know I mean even when alcohol you know first in the U.S. you know it was like you're looking at these Puritans and these like white Anglo-Saxon Protestants and they're looking at all these like European immigrants coming in and they're like, they drink too much beer. They drink too much wine. They drink too much this. They drink too much that, right? Because they they don't have that substance using culture and they have their own problems associated with that, right? But then those people who later became white, they were like, no, this is acceptable form of recreation. So we're going to have cocktail hour. In yeah. fact, and then even with like nicotine, we're like, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're gonna we're gonna give you a break in the day so that you can take this up. We're gonna call it a smoke break. We're gonna we're gonna create a technology that makes tobacco say, man, this is tobacco, right? This is what tobacco is supposed to look like. Okay. Oh, you got some good stuff. Yeah. This stuff's supposed, you know, folks been using it for thousands of years Mm -hmm. as incense as a cleansing, all, right, all this stuff. What does America do? It's like, okay, we, you can do it for 15 minutes. And we're going to create a technology so that it lasts exactly for 15 minutes. That's why we have a 15-minute smoke break. You're supposed, you're supposed to be able to smoke two in 7.5 minutes. Like one each, 7.5 minutes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So the issue is not recreation and substance. The issue is the substance, right? Is it the marijuana, right? Like Mexican, right? Like... Mexican drug used in, you know, like used across the country, used across this hemisphere, right? But in the twenties, when the depression is going on, and these Mexican um, immigrants that were invited into the country when people didn't want to work, sound familiar? Now they're trying to kick them out again. And so, what does the Hearst Company do? They start running all these articles about the dangers of marijuana and the marijuana menace, right? And mm-hmm. how. How you get America down to like stop anything? Just threaten white women, right? Oh. And these Mexicans are gonna be out here touching these white women. They're like, all right, get them out and get this marijuana out too, right? Same thing with cocaine, right? Cocaine, just the coca plant alone. Forget the processing of cocaine, but like mm-hmm. coca plant again, thousands of years been used in the Andes. Huge, huge amounts of calcium in it right? Mm-hmm. Totally opens up respiratory tracts when you're in high altitude so you can actually breathe, right? Mm-hmm. Totally kills appetite, right? So if there's not a lot going around, you get to go a few days without eating and be relatively okay, right? Mm-hmm. So it gets processed and processed and processed and that, that whole thing is sick. Um, but then you have this cocaine and dock workers again, 20s, 30s, 40s in, in um, New Orleans, Black um, dock workers are using it because they're doing serious physical labor 12, 13, 14 hours a day, right? So they're like, yeah, I need something to keep me going. Mm-hmm. I'm not So like rationed to like soldiers and stuff or maybe that was like back in the was, like like World Wars stuff like kind of deal? 
I know that was mess. I don't know. That was mess. My bad. No, it's okay. Right. But then what happens with cocaine, right? It's like, again, I mean, literally, this is the headline, which I freaking love this headline. I'm going to name a band after this. Cocaine crazed Negroes, right? (laughs) I'm like, yes, tell me more about these cocaine crazed Negroes. (laughs) You know, but then, and then what was it? Cocaine crazed Negroes attacking white women, right? Mm -hmm. And literally in the South, cops got higher calibers of bullets because they were like, Negroes will not be stopped on cocaine with a 22. And I'm like, y'all some funny individuals, you know? So all of our drug laws are basically, they're not based off of health. They're based off of racism. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that like, based off of health, like that was the logic of them is that we were made different. Biologically, we were made different. Like, we see that even in the medical community today. Like, oh, yeah. Man, I went to the dentist and I got knocked out because that's the only way I can sit in that chair. Mm-hmm. And I'm coming back and this dental assistant, she's like, oh, is that hard? I was like, uh, yeah, I don't feel good. She's like, yeah, it was a really hard extraction. Um, she said, <laughs> I think it's because Black people's bones are denser than white people's. And I'm half drugged out. And I'm like, what did this say to me? Just says that. Like, <laughs> like out loud. I was like, you tell your husband that at home. Don't tell me that. Like, we They were over there selling you to death. Never went back. I didn't pay the bill either. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I did. I did. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I was like that. Oh, yeah, the healthcare system's rough out here. But honestly, speaking of, I feel like we've gotten into, you know, health activism and <laughs> all of that and harm reduction. Um, you've come from, you know, a very prominent political line of poets, activists, freedom fighters, healers, and, you know, health and like healing black people like that's like i i just love to hear about it because i think you talk so much about biomedical racism which is true and a fact and it's out here but like how we can actually move forward and take care of ourselves and embrace what's like good and has always been good and will continue to be good and will like be even greater is just so important to me so can you just tell us about your lineage because like you yeah yeah go for Um, it well on the on my mom's side you know I come from a bunch of black women from North Carolina that were all healers in some way my grandma was a nurse my aunt was a nurse my mom was a nurse um mom was one of the first people to do rape, rape crisis counseling in Harlem um, she's one of the first people to do ambulatory detox mm. in Harlem. Um, so I grew up around the medical field. And I think the other part in connection with that is also like, it was very clear that that wasn't enough for Black people. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so I always had like spiritual communities around like 
my offer ceremonies and like Sankofa stuff and like all of that was just like, you know, it's always some bembe, some freaking whatever going mm. on. So I just grew up around that. It wasn't like, I always say like I grew up in like um, an international black city. Cause like Harlem, when I was growing up, it was like, there was like, you could hear black people speaking like Jamaican Patois, French Patois, like Haitian Patois, mm. French, German, English, um, you know, and they were all black. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean, so it wasn't like, so I just had this international idea of of like what blackness was on this like inter-religious idea of what black was. You know, some cats were Muslim, some cats were like, some cats were like Muslim, Muslim, and some cats were like 5% Muslim, mm -hmm. you know, like Islam, Muslim, and some mm -hmm. cats were Christian. Some cats were Eastern Orthodox Christian, and some cats were Jewish, and then some cats were Black Hebrew, right? So it was just like this mix, right? Um, mm -hmm. I went to the African traditional religions with the Buiti folks and, and the Yoruba folks. So that was on that side, and that's the side that I grew up with, right? Mm. The other side that I didn't grow up with was my dad, who he was one of the first people, he was the first person, I believe. Um, along with some of his friends, to bring acupuncture to the South Bronx in Harlem. Mm. Um, a five-point ear technique to um, help reduce opioid cravings. Mm -hmm. um, his name is Matulu Shakur. Um, he just got out of prison after like 35, 36 years. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, so he's um, he's that other side. But like I said, I didn't grow up with him. I didn't grow up with him. I didn't know who he, I didn't know he was my father until I was 25 years old. Wow. Mm. Okay. Mm. Mm. Come from some folks. <laughs> so on both sides, just wow. <laughs> and you also have someone else in your family too. <laughs> who I also Wait, just who, admire. Who? That you have um, in your family? like <laughs> No, no, someone that you have in your family that I admire. Like, I just recently did a conference out in L.A., and they had a whole art exhibit on the life of Tupac. And I oh. went, and I was just like, <laughs> I love him. <laughs> so, yeah, I always have to say, like, I never met Pac. Um, <laughs> I didn't get a chance to hang out with him. Um, he died two years before I linked mm. up with that side of the family. Mm. Wow. But my mm. dad raised him. Mm. Uh, and then my sister, um, my, I don't really do half. Like, if you're my sister, you're my sister. So yeah. my sister mm -hmm. grew up knowing who I was. Mm. And so she would piss off Pac and she would be like, you're not my real brother. Aiza is my real brother and I'm going to go find him and da 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 And so like he knew who I was. Um, I talked about this before, but um, on another podcast, but like there was one time I, I kind of met Pac. Um, I didn't like, it was uh, Above the Rim, that um, that movie that he was in. Yeah. Yeah, so I had just come back from Morocco and they were shooting around the corner from my mom's job. And my friends were like, yo, you should come through and like be in this movie. And I was like, mm, whatever. Um, and they're like, no, everybody's here, pockets here. And at the time I was like a straight punk kid. You know what I mean? I was like blonde mohawk, like. Oh, uh, like 
punk like yeah, yeah hardcore like, yeah like you know hr bad brands like you know mm-hmm. that like cbgb's kind of fucking shit you know like go goes all that mm-hmm. so i was like nah, i don't know about this shit they're like no just go to the <laughs> i was like okay so like you know it's like a, a movie set so like okay everybody wait over here uh you know like once we call cut like wait for me i'll let you go and you, you go sit in the stands i was like okay cool so I go and I'm trying to find my friends and they're like, yo, Aize, Aize. And I was like, oh. And then Pac just turns around. He's like, Aize. And I was like, oh. <laughs> after that name not with that voice. And it's like, it's, 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 it's height of Pac. You know what I mean? It's like already been shot once, already suing OPE. Like, he's like in it. And I'm like, this yeah. nigga fucked me up. And I don't even know what the fuck I did. So I was like, fuck. And he knows, like, he knows me. He knows the whole thing. My mom kept me away from all of it. I had no inkling at all. Oh, uh, you were the sheltered side. Yeah. Well, I, and I left, too. I left pretty young. So I was, oh. like, boarding school. I was, like, hanging out in the street. I was, like, going, like, I was not, like, I was uh, not a fam. In the street. So, yeah. Yeah. A lot of my friends were, like, you know, House of Diva or whatever. Like, I was hanging out with, like, the fucking homeless trans kids, you know? <laughs> Ah, so my whole vibe was different, you know what I mean? So like, yeah, yeah. So he comes up to me, he's like, You know who I am? And I'm like, Yeah, you two blocks quit. Yeah, I fucking know who you are. Like, <laughs> like yeah, what? <laughs> you know, and he's like, All right, he's like, You good? I was like, I mean, if you don't fuck me up, I'm good. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, good. He's like, All right. And then I went off, and they're like, my friends like, "How the fuck do you know Tupac?" I'm like, "I don't know Tupac. I don't like that's not my life." <laughs> so wow. that's that's the only time I met him. So at the time, you didn't know what he knew. Nope. Wow. Mm. At least he introduced himself to you. That's an interesting introduction, but yeah, <laughs> you know, hey, you know, family love. Yeah, we, you know we have all those. You know the family members. It's just a little. They're rough, but they're soft. No, totally. And I think if I had if I hadn't really known who he was, he would have just taken me in, and he would have been like, "Come on, let's go." Da, da, da. But I think like again, you know, my mom. You know, I mean, with good reason. The place where my dad was doing that five point ear technique got shot up by NYPD. Like. Mm-hmm. two days after my mom brought me there one time so like she was real and those guys i mean you know my dad NYPD up- as the villain exactly you know like we'll talk about ops you know so like Whew. everybody was i mean not everybody was as cautious as they should be um and my mom was just like nope like it wasn't even an option she wasn't like stay out of it she's like you're not in it mm. you know so like i just didn't have mm. I didn't have that context at the time. Mm-hmm. Wow. Oof. This is great because, I mean, we inherently wanted to start off season two with some real explicit political views on <laughs> drugs and in terms of, like, how, like, different policies and just there's different things going on and often we don't see the human in people. And being able to see the human in people can like really change things. So thanks for being here. Uh, we kind of got straight into it. Um, 
yeah, yeah. Like, this is great. Um, no, I hear you. I mean, like, <laughs> you can't. Even that, right? Like, it's like we don't we don't see the human in people. I'm like, motherfucker, who the fuck is sitting in front of you? Mm-hmm. And like, we are so quick to just like snatch someone's humanity from them, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they're not really gonna exist. And it's like, you know, I love Gil Scott Heron. Mm-hmm. Gil Scott Heron mm-hmm. used to call the house when I was a kid. What? Yeah, the whole click, the whole click. You know, they all connected, right? Mass poets, all them, right? Y'all lived well. Well, but you know, there's a lot. I mean, you know about Gil. I mean, yeah. Right? Gil was doing a lot of fucking, you know, he's on that Gil Scott. Artfully. Artfully. Right. So, do we dismiss that genius, that heart? that care, that love, because my man had a relationship with heroin that he didn't, that like wasn't healthy for him. Mm-hmm. Or do we like extend compassion and be like, what can we do to keep you around longer? Because mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure if he hadn't done time, he'd still be with us. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And that's the shit that pisses me off. Like, like um, you know, autobiography of Malcolm X, you know, he talks about, uh, what was his name? Um, it's not Trinidad James, but that's the name. Um, West Indian Archie, right? Mm-hmm. And he's talking about West Indian Archie and, and being a numbers runner, right? Back where everybody's playing three numbers and whatever, whichever one comes up, that's the one that wins. And he said, West Indian Archie kept all his numbers in his head and never made a mistake in like 10 years. And he said, that man could have been one of the greatest mathematicians on the planet. Mm. We don't know that man's potential because he was born black in America. Mm-hmm. That opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I feel the same way about substance use. It's like you think that because somebody has chosen or for whatever reason the person is on this substance, that their contribution to this country, to this planet, to this world is done. Mm-hmm. That's fast. Like I don't even know how you how you fix your mouth to say some bullshit like that. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. I wish people knew how regular genius was, especially like black genius. Like, uh, me and my friend were just talking about the other day how like if you nigger rig something, like you're literally innovating. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like oh, I gotta hurry up and find a like simple solution to this like thing going on, and I don't got a lot of resources. I mean, that's literally a like engineering design problem, but like. I don't know. Like, Justin and I being privileged enough to go to engineering school, we can see, like, okay, the innovation that we do in our lives is, like, very much so connected to the problems that, like, we want to solve, whether they be political or something that somebody's just going to pay us for, if you want to be honest. <laughs> like, that's how it is. But, money, yeah, well, I chose grad school, so. Oh, you're going to make money. You make money. <laughs> Engineering grad school? No, sociology. Oh, you ain't going to make money. <laughs> I like you, but you ain't going to make money. No, sociology. cute, though. That's cute. I like it. Do, keep doing it, but you ain't going to make money doing that. Well, I'm such actually, an old man right now. I know I am. Are you going to get a good job with that sociology degree? What you going to do with that? Math and science <laughs> only. Sure. Better go back there and get that engineering, build a bridge or something. 
Yeah. <laughs> no, but for real, I, so here's the thing is I want to do research. Well, I did research on how bioengineering um, and like the production of like science, technology, medical innovations, all of that stuff is reproducing racism, but like also the dynamics that are happening, like the social dynamics that are happening in the lab, I just paid more attention to them and like what DEI culture does so that we ignore and then reproduce it. So I was like excited to do the sociology work and now I'm tired of it because sociologists are allowed to theorize and not do and engineers are allowed to do and not theorize. So my solution is I'm just going to have to be a consultant and just tell Johnson and Johnson, no, this design choice is racist. Let's think about this one. Let's think about a subject pool. Let's systematize how we do this. So that's like also what I want to do besides work in cannabis. And somebody's going to pay me a lot of money for it because these white folks keep talking about what diversity is and they have no oh, so idea gonna, what it is. You want to get into this? You want to talk about this? Because I'm in this. Yeah. I'm in this yeah. right yeah. now. Yeah. Listen, I can't, my, yeah. I can't talk about everything, but I can talk about in the psychedelic movement. Okay. And I can that nine times out of 10, when they're saying they want to do something, they are mm-hmm. talking about their asses. Mm-hmm. I just wrote an email today I did, I did this training with this with this group last year. Um, I brought two other people into it, two women of color. They wanted a diversity training. And I'm like, I don't do diversity training. That is <laughs> that, like you drop in. Racism is bad. Yaka, yaka, yaka. Give me my check. See you later. Blah, blah, blah. I don't do that. I do not do that. I'm like, but if you want to talk about the ways in which white supremacy culture dismantles allyship across gender, race, class, sexual orientation, mm-hmm. you have that dialogue. If you want to talk about the ways in which white supremacy culture has implicated psychedelics to be such a thing that is like unapproachable to large amounts of people of color, mm-hmm. right? We can have that conversation. So mm-hmm. did that. They were like, yo, this is kind of expensive. We were wondering, could you do a workshop for us? I was like, did you not hear me the first time? Motherf-? Like, they, and, and this is one of the best ones. I was, <laughs> I was consulting with this other, I was consulting with an academic institution. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Yo, really good idea here. Y'all got this money. You have an African-American studies program. Why don't you go and offer for grad students some research money to look at the role of plant medicine and African-Americans from when we got off the boat to the 1970s or 80s, right? Mm -hmm. African-Americans have synthesized white and Native American healing traditions. And you've been primarily off the book. So looking at oral histories, mm. looking at whatever would be great. Somehow mm. they managed to do it for Native Americans, but they couldn't do it for African Americans. Mm. But they will steady be there talking that shit about diversity. And then I look like a fucking lunatic <laughs> when I'm like, do not talk to me about diversity if you mm-hmm. can't talk to me about your own anti-blackness. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Even when you look at the studies around psychedelics, I looked at one of these mega studies that looks at all the studies, you know, mm-hmm. looks at all the participants in mm-hmm. the studies for all the psychedelics, all oh, psychedelics will help heal trauma. Seven, 2.9% African Americans in all, in all the studies, which rounded out to about 7.8 people. Mm. Do not base anything on 7.8 Black people. <laughs> 7.8 Black people will not wow. be able to agree what day it is, what the weather is. Like, don't, don't do that. But then you're going to sit there and talk about this is great for vets. And you know, the majority of vets are people of color. You're going to talk about PTSD. You're going to talk about PTSD in the United States. Largely mm-hmm. Black people, right? But they're out here steady talking that blah, 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 acting like they got numbers to back it up. But when you actually look at the numbers, they don't line up. Mm-hmm. So they'll say, yeah, 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 yeah. But as soon as it costs something, or demands that they shift how they do their research. Because mm-hmm. for psychedelics, a lot of the, we get ruled out not through explicit racism, but through implicit racism in terms of who's allowed to be in the study. Mm. So if you have diabetes, hypertension, five other things that African-Americans have, <laughs> they're not good for the study. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm. But if you're 18 to 35 year old white, individual who goes happens to just go to a college campus that has that is advertising for this oh then yeah we got a spot for you and -hmm. so then all the data is based off of that Mm -hmm. right so it's just like what like i'm not i'm not playing that game you know so i nine times out of ten i sound like a lunatic in psychedelic spaces because they're like but we we're trying so hard Mm -hmm. we care so much yeah. And I'm like, you care when you don't have to sacrifice anything. Mm-hmm. As soon as you have to shift the way that you behave, pay, think, mm-hmm. educate, all of a sudden, it's an extra. It's not endemic. It's not at the core of it. It's an extra. So you want to do that work? God bless you. You seem younger than me. You got some strength, <laughs> you got some vigor. You going to go in there and just scrap with them? You go right ahead, because I swear I'm about to be, I'm about to tap out and be like, you know, I'm just going to be over here in Oakland working with my people. Everybody else can eat a bag of donkey dicks. Jeez. That's just me. We got to be the first podcast to say donkey dicks. That's fire. Um, (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many parallels with, like, that general... Um, like structure idea you described of like how you know on the surface like these policies are like advocates like or promoters like you know really helping people when like in reality you look at like you know the way that in this case from the research standpoint like the way that the study's done um or i guess what i was going to compare to is like the last conversation that we had um with uh dr ayoka nurse um she's studying a lot of public policy relating to like cannabis and she was talking all about how um, like as we kind of get closer to like, well, not, I won't say closer, but how f- federal legalization of like, um, like recreational marijuana becomes like more of a topic, and how like there's these, um, you know, there's all these policies that are pr- trying to promote like, um, I guess like new owners of cannabis industries or trying to 
Um, like some of them actually have like equity kind of promoted like at the forefront. But then when you start to look at things, when the more implicit things like you're saying, like um, like the cost involved for like these applications or like not having like certain things on your record, like comparing to like, you know, um, not, you know, being afflicted with like, you know, certain diseases that are like more common in like the black community and stuff. Um, like when you get to these more implicit things, it's like you start to, you know, disqualify these people that you really were looking to you're you're on the service that you're trying to help yeah i always i'm gonna i'm gonna be at the uh, multi-associated multidisciplinary association for psychedelic science maps in june and i get to talk to rick Do hopefully i get to talk to rick doblin who started maps and rick doblin's been saying for years now he's like you know, when MDMA becomes legal, we're going to need like 1,500 new therapists a year to deal with the demand and da 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 Look, I'm a therapist, okay? I've been a therapist since 2003. Here's what I can tell you. By and large, with exceptions, Black people don't go to therapy. I wish, I wish my clientele was primarily Black. It's not. I'm okay mm -hmm. with it, right? Mm -hmm. But like, no, if I was relying solely on Black people for therapy, and I'm in Oakland, you know what I mean? Like th that would be a struggle. Maybe I could do it in Atlanta, right? Mm -hmm. So by saying 1,500 new therapists, you're kind of implicitly leaving out majority of black people. So here's my question. Why not we're gonna have to train 1,500 home health care nurses who are already in the community or early childhood development folks? right? People who are running uh, daycare centers because they're already in the community. Or how about this? Let's go really radical. How about we train 1,500 fucking nonviolent drug offenders? Because you know they know about drugs, mm -hmm. right? But the framing, right? Like I think a lot of white people and a lot of black people just keep missing the point that like white supremacy culture is not over. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Puppy, it's just the water. See, my my dog is mad about it. <laughs> it's the water that we swim in. It's you know what I mean. So, like, if we're gonna really confront white supremacy culture, we're gonna have to get uncomfortable. Real. We're gonna have to get out of the water. Black, white, Latino don't matter, right? Like, we're gonna have to like hold our breath for a little bit and see how that feels. Like, what happens? Mm -hmm. to white supremacy culture supporting every cell in your body. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that I think all of these research possibilities, social service things, all these things, not all of them, but many of them miss that point. And I'm really getting to the point where I'm like, if you are not actively and consistently addressing white supremacy culture, mm -hmm. you're doing lip service. And maybe that's just where you got to be right now. But like, yeah, just, I'm, I'm, I'm not interested. <laughs> you know, that doesn't, that doesn't fill my cup. Right. You know? Not fulfilling at all. Like, I don't, I don't feel trauma. Like when cats talk about like, oh, this is trauma-informed therapy or trauma. I'm like, no, that's, that's, that's just being black in America. Like that's like, it's a traumatic experience. Like life is a fucking traumatic experience for like 99.9% .9 of people on this planet. So like, 
if we stop pathologizing it, we can maybe have like better empathy writ large for everybody. You know, like I'm always like, you don't know what somebody's going through. You know, like I've been walking down the street when my like best friend committed suicide the day before. Nobody would have known. You know what I mean? So like, I'm always like, everybody's where they're at. You know, I'm giving people as much grace and as much slide as they can. But it's like, mm-hmm. it's like, you got to mm-hmm. be like trauma in order to get that empathy. And I'm like, no, like you got life, right? Like you're dealing with life. I got yeah. you. You yeah. know, like if you're really engaged with your life and you're seeing both the positives and the and the deficits and you're like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I'm like, I got you. I'm with you. I'm with you. You know what I mean? But it's like, we make it so like about sickness and about illness and about like, you know, like pathologizing and you have to fix it. I, don't know, I just, that's not my shit. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Because yeah, we could literally save so much like time, money, resources, effort if we just invested in life and valued life and living and like thought that was beautiful before we sat there and just let people be miserable and then saw death as a problem to solve. Right. Like, but we don't value life. And it's like, people don't want to hear things like that. Like, they're like, like when you're like, oh, American values, life is not one of them. Like, not at all. Wild. Not at all. You talked a bit about your well, it's more of a rant about your experience um, regarding like psychedelic research, um, and then you also mentioned uh, your documentary that you're writing um, on the you know on the topic as well. So, you know, just want to give you some space to talk about that and just kind of. Um, I guess make I guess yeah, like what's the how is your experience with the um with your in the industry like tied into that? Yeah, so um I've been working with psychedelics since like 2004, 2005, right? Um everybody I work with, white, black, Latino, Vietnamese, Hmong. Filipino, Cambodian, Samoan, Oakland, just Oakland. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I go away for a couple of years, get an MFA. I come back to the Bay Area and it's psychedelic this and San Francisco psychedelic blah and Oakland psychedelic blah and the psychedelic blah, da, da, da. And I was like, dope, let's do this. And I walk in and it is like a sea of vanilla ice cream. Like it was just it was like, <laughs> like white, like I like honestly, like I'm I'm not joking. I'm not, not joking. vanilla ice cream. I hadn't seen this many white people assembled together in Oakland in like a decade. Mm. I was like, what is going on? Like, what is happening? But you know, listen, I navigate white. Look, I got three master's degrees. Trust me. I know how to navigate white spaces. I worked mm-hmm. as a school therapist for a decade at private prep schools. I know how to navigate white spaces. Mm-hmm. So I go into these white spaces and these people are fucking up. <laughs> like the one, you know, I go to this like psychedelic training thing and the husband is molesting dudes and has been molesting dudes for like 20 years. The wife, like, 
acts like she's the shit, but all of her stuff is raggedy and taken from Mexican people. And I'm like, yeah, no, nah, I can't, I can't carry your lineage. I'm not fucking mm. with y'all. Mm. Then, I, then I go to this other thing and it's like a church. And I'm like, I have a master's in divinity. Like I work in religious spaces. So I'm like, yes, let's do a psychedelic church and help them put their paperwork together and whatever. Mm. Turns out it's just like an old white dude that like wants a cult. Oh, exactly. I was like, this motherfucker done got me fucked up in the game. <laughs> I thought I was doing some real shit here in this little right? culty motherfucker. Goddamn, drink the fucking Kool-Aid. Right? So I was pissed. Right? So I was like, well, fuck him too. I still say that. <laughs> Um, and so I was like, okay, look, I can, and this, this is, this is two generations of activists. I can try and find the thing I want, or I can make the thing that I want. So me and some other folks were like, okay, let's call together the black people that we know in the psychedelic space. And we're just going to get together and we're just going to parlay. Like, we're just going to kick it. We're going to, I'm going to get the food, we're gonna get a retreat center. It's gonna be like three days and it's just gonna be like, where you been? Where you at? And where you're going? And that's it. We don't have to do a five point agenda. We don't have to have outcomes, just us together. And when mm. I tell you that shit was magic, that mm. shit was magic. Mm. Like cats came in. Cause you know, these are cats and these are big wigs in the shit. You know what I mean? Like we got like, Nifa, uh, Tyra Washington from the Fireside Project. Sarah mm. has written like gang of pro uh, papers, like psychedelic papers. Um, we got like spiritual healers. We got dude from Oakland Hyphae, which like did the first like mushroom testing, like outside of academic institutions. All these cats together, mm. they're used to navigating white spaces too. Mm -hmm. So they come in and they were like, because like they agreed and then they were like, what the fuck did I get into, right? Mm -hmm. And then they come and they're like, oh, wait, it's it's just us? I'm like, yeah. They're like, it's just us for us? Bye. I'm like, yeah. They're like, fuck yeah. And so everybody started chilling. And everybody started having a good time. And it was like, it was like the best three days of summer camp you ever had in your life. Mm. Um, and then I had nine cameras there. Mm. And I interviewed everybody who was there. And we had this one day where everybody was in a room together and we just like, you know, chopped it up and was like, what's going on? What's real? Like, what, you know, where's everybody at? Um, and so got all that footage. And um, since September, I have been editing that footage um, mm. with, an, with, uh, uh, with a friend of mine who's been, who's been uh, doing a lot of the technical stuff, which has been really great. Um, and so we've, we're going to be showing it, um, the, the big release is at the MAPS conference in, um, in Colorado in June, but then the goal is to do sort of like a, a tour of, um, you know, black medicine spaces around the country, Wow. Um, show the doc, but then also like invite in local community and then just have like Q and A dialogue, da da da, with whoever can show, like, and be part of it. Wow. Uh, 
I think part of my like fuck the psychedelic space, and it's not fuck the psychedelic space, but psychedelic funders, I'm kind of like y'all are yeah, like we do not agree. Let's put it like that. Um, I've been to like the majority of the of the big donators and literally one sentence email, like I'm not gonna look it up to read it word for word, but basically what it said was um the goal of having more black people enter the psychedelic space doesn't fit with our goals as an institution. And I was like, you put that down in an email? Hey, they told the truth though. They did. They did. I, I was I was impressed, right? I was like, okay, y'all got some air on your chest. Just gonna say that you know, Like, let's like, be oh. honest. We can fix it if it's open like that. <laughs> right? So I'm like, but but you know, one of the most oh la la blah 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 blush motherfuckers out there. And I'm like, oh. So they still the dissonance is still there. Oh still abs- there. absolutely. That's remarkable. Here's what it is. They don't understand our importance. Like you were saying before about like, like when you like niggify something and you like, wow, look at it. I made that shit. That's not supposed to be there. Right. That's like initially how, what attracted me to Afrofuturism. Mm. Right? I was like in that old school Afrofuturism listserv back when there were fucking listservs. And, wow. Yeah. That's and there was a whole parlay about like broken technology. And like mm. second, third life technology, right? And mm. how Africa was like the center of like reci- like actual recycling, like recycling phones to be computers, like recycling like screens to be glasses, like reci- like recycling speakers to be headphones. Like mm. that, like this was not just based off of utility, but there was an aesthetic about it, right? That some people mm. call an Afrofuturist. Mm. Right. And I was like, I like that. You know, mm. they don't know the magic that we do. <laughs> you know, mm. despite the magic that we do, right? <laughs> despite tolerating their asses for 400 plus years, mm. despite like take, you know, giving the shitty ass food and us making fucking gumbo and fucking amazing mm-hmm. things, despite them giving us fucking old fucked up military instruments and us turning it into jazz they don't understand the magic that we do and they think that we're going to do things the way that they do it so like Mm -hmm. psychedelic thing even with that i'm like why are you guys taking this posture of like i was saying earlier of like victim right that like the clinical model is like okay well you have two clinicians sitting there and you have one person who's taking the medication and they need to sit down and lay down and have a blindfold over them and they'll listen to calming music i'm like that is the posture of the dead right that is someone attending to someone who is ill for thousands of years this work has been used to invigorate people mm-hmm. People didn't just take some mushrooms and sit down. People took some mushrooms and went running. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? People mm-hmm. took some, people drank some shit and got married, mm-hmm. right? People smoked some shit, had a dream, told the entire community about the dream, and the community interpreted what that dream should be. You saying Martin was chasing? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I had a dream. <laughs> Hey, you see how important our visions are to us? You see how important? 
We still talking about one nigga's dream 50 fucking 60 years later. We still talking about he's like, nah, man, he had this dream. You gotta hear it. The shit was crazy. We said we was all gonna get to the mountaintop. He had a dream for us, right? That's how we do, right? Like a lot of times when I'm in training with work, with medicine works, um, especially, you know, there's like two camps. Some folks are like, will you stop telling everybody what the fuck you saw? That was your vision for you, for you to figure out, mm. right? And then there's another camp that's like, you tell other people your visions and then you shut the fuck up and listen to what comes back. Mm. Because if you journey with a group of people, you may have only gotten one part of the message. Mm -hmm. This person may need to hear your part in order for them to say their part. But mm. like, there's community. So there's lots of different ways to approach this work. But this, this clinical model that everything is being filtered through is also a white model, which strips some of the, I think, the most important parts of this work out of the work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Jeez. And I think, oh, this is just the perfect transition to the second part of your bio. <laughs> Because yeah, 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 the Afrofuturism talk is beautiful. So in yeah. 2009, you self-published The Liminal People, which was later picked up and distributed by Small Beer Press. And you wrote two more books in the series, The Liminal War and The Entrepreneur of Bones. And then the fourth and final installment, The Liminal Series, is forthcoming from the Small Beer Press. It's, it's you, out. I think it's out now. It's out now. As, as of, of yesterday, maybe? As there of yesterday! Congrats. <laughs> Got a reading at Small Beer Press next week. I mean, at um, City Lights Books in San Francisco next week. Oh. Uh, yeah. Oh, Forever in Cali. We'll come find you. That's close. Please, please. Yay! Say less. <laughs> we like to travel. Um, and you've also written a graphic novel titled Box of Bones with two-time uh, Eisner Award John Jennings and Box of Bones is published by Rosarian Press with more installments forthcoming. Um, and, uh, uh, October, second half of uh, Box of Bones is coming out in October. Wow. It, should, it was going to come out this month, but they like wanted to push back to get a little more press. We've also been optioned. We'll see if that goes through, but uh, okay. the company is looking at trying to do a, a TV show based off of Box of Bones. Wow. A company. A company. Yes. I don't want to say their names because the mm -hmm. thing I've learned is options don't mean shit <laughs> mm. um when, once they start to even development doesn't mean shit necessarily mm -hmm. uh, i'm not gonna say anything until it's like on tv no i'm not gonna say nothing until it's on hulu like the next day <laughs> then i'm like okay <laughs> the next time we interview you oh yeah the show just got out yesterday <laughs> that's it. Mm. and i that's how I, that's how i might know that it's happening that's how Second, I am from the whole process. Wow. 
So you have quite the list and your work's been written about favorably in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and it got star reviews in what, Kirkus? I don't even know what that journal is. <laughs> <laughs> and you've been an honored guest at the 2007 FogCon. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And we're a featured panelist at Book Riot. Uh, and your, oof, your book's ability, your, <laughs> your books defy easy categorization, but hold on to what you consider to be the veracity of fiction's ability to expose the human condition, which we've just touched on briefly here, I feel like, and at least in essence. In your novels, the reader will find science fiction, romance, action, spirituality, and philosophical questions with uncomfortable answers. So us tying together so many of the elements of this interview, and once again, reintroducing yourself <laughs> as a science fiction author, can we please put some virtual round of applause? <laughs> <Sorry, guys. laughs> so yeah, science fiction, this is, oh, I, I guess I don't. What do you What do you like most about it? Like I don't even know where you want to get into it because it's just like I just love the fact that I think my like I think Black people have been leading science fiction. Like I grew up a nerd, but I was never the nerd who watched like Star Wars or Star Trek. Although you know I hear those are great shows, but like I was exposed to Octavia Butler because. I was just interested in reading more stuff with black women in it. And I was like, oh, she's just talking about the like world and what it is now. And then I got exposed to Alondra Nelson's work and was also tied with her as a sociologist. And then through there started to be more exposed to Afrofuturism and music and things and like even like comics with uh what's it like Trixia and like, you know, Parliament. So like all all these cool stuff. So to me, like Afro, like like when I think of like sci-fi, I think Afrofuturism. Like the two are like inseparable. So having you on here is like that is like the reason why I was like you have to come on the podcast. All the other stuff, and then also you know your interest with liberation and psychedelics, but just like all the other stuff, I think is just complements everything so well. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I gotta get more interviews with black people because you say it compliments so well. People are like, it just seems like it's a lot of different stuff. It just seems like, and I'm like, fuck you. Like, this is like, I mean, I'm like you, you know, like I, I mean, I was a geek. I was a complete and total geek. Like when everybody was a gangster, I was a geek. Do you know I'm a I mean? gangster and a geek. I'll I say was, that. I was not a gangster. I was a, I was a geek um, and I was a punk. And like, I was like, what, what that meant was that I was like, I would not start a shit, but if you fuck with my comics, we would have problems. I had, <laughs> I had fucking Doc Martens on, fucking Oxblood Red. I would stomp your fucking ankles. Oh, like, the Oxblood Red and Doc Martens. You know, like had my torn up jacket. Like I was, I was that kid, you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. um, like, I wasn't, I wasn't cool, but like. I just bought, you know, and I was like, I mean, I was on one level, I had these like, you know, back to Africa, 
you know, adults around me that seemed like they were living in an alternative world. Cause I was like, y'all realize you lost, right? Like, I don't want to be a dick about it, but like, you realize like we are not liberated, right? Like that crackhead over there is not liberated, my guy. Right. But like, they got that narrative running. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, public schools. And they're like, you know, if you work really hard and you can achieve the American dream. And I was like, who? Like none of my teachers live in New York. Everybody lives in New Jersey because you can't buy shit. So what do you like? What is it? Right. So everybody had this alternative way of looking at the world. And I just wanted mine. Right. And mm. so I start, you know, you read a uh, parable of the sower. Is that, is that really science fiction? Like, does it, it doesn't feel like science fiction. It just feels like it was written a little early, but it didn't, it didn't feel so out there. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I, like I said earlier, I'm surrounded by all these spiritual communities and religious communities and I'm seeing shit and they're sacrificing chickens over my head and shit. And so when motherfuckers start talking about like psychics and whatever, I'm like, I'm like yeah, okay. Yeah, I got that. Yeah, what? Like people talk about magical powers. I'm like, well, I hope so because this nigga just killed a chicken over my head. So I'm getting something over out of this. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't, it wasn't wild to me. I wasn't like, how does this happen? I was like, everything that was presented in sci-fi, I was like, mm. okay, I, I get it. Right? Like, this makes sense to me, right? Plus, I was reading comics, like, on the regular. That was the thing that, like, I consistently read. So I was just indoctrinated with science-sounding shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> seemed fantastic and interesting. So sci-fi was just, like... Nat- I mean, what the fuck else is a black kid in Ireland supposed to read? You can only read mm-hmm. Manchild of the Promised Land for so long. You can only read books for like so long. Like at some point, I need something that's like entertaining and interesting and like takes me <laughs> out of this bubble, as opposed to like, you know, poor Negroes not being able to survive. I'm like, I'm not I'm not interested in that. Uncle Remus is cool, fine, right? But what else? So mm-hmm. sci-fi to me was just like this liberation place. And I was just like mm-hmm. out there. And then, you know, doing all my things, doing all my spiritual studies and whatever. And then uh, Dark Matter comes out, mm-hmm. right? Uh, this anthology of uh, Black sci-fi, which starts with W.E.B. Du Bois. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. short story, The Comet. And I was like, the fuck? We've been talking about this shit this long? And I was like, I'll actually tell you this story. This is actually funny. So in there, there is a thing for, um, there was a a transcript of the Afrofuturism listserv. So I was like, Mm. clack, 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 bang. Okay, cool, I'm on it. I don't know what a fucking listserv is. I don't know how I got here. I just type shit on the address line. Boom, I'm here. I'm joining up. Cool, right? So Mm -hmm. I was just reading things. And it was like, um, DJ Spooky was on there. Um, Mm. Nalo Kankinson was on there. Um, I forget his name, uh, uh, Public Enemy's former publicist was on there. It was like, oh, these- wow. It was like early, not early, uh, mid-early days of the internet, right? So, I mean, it had to be. I was still doing dial-up. Um, so they were on there, and there's like these these fractions, of, not fractions, but like orientations, right? Mm-hmm. And there's this definite like back-to-Africa orientation, this like Black nationalist orientation, and I've never been a fan of that just because a lot of times it was like a lot of cloaked, like just 
you know, misogyny and like homophobia. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was so I was I always kind of fucked with them. Anyway, somebody on there wrote, black people shouldn't have relations with white people, shouldn't have sexual relations with white people while uh while white supremacy is present or some shit like that. And for mm. me, I was like, I know this is this is 90s. I was like, I know the dangers of policing black bodies. I don't care who's doing it, black or white. That that's mm-hmm. a problem. Right. I was also a little shit talker back then. Um <laughs> I've changed so much, right? Uh, <laughs> and I had a white girlfriend. And uh. Yeah. And I was like, mm-hmm. and I wrote, I was like, I just had sex with a white girl and it was really good too. <laughs> like, like, that was just the title. I swear. I was like, cause like I spent time with the whole thing where I was like, Ghetto. yes, but I was like, look, if we start policing black bodies, then who gets to be the police? I don't want to police anybody else's body. I want anybody to Pleasure is something that like is an, an endemical to the human condition. And however people find pleasure, as long as they're not hurting somebody else, should be fine. Once we start doing this, there's a problem. Da, da, da. Wrote that out all very well. But then I put in the tag and I just had sex with the white girl. Um, I, to this day, to this day, I have not gotten so much hate mail in my entire life. To this, <laughs> that's to this funny. Day. I'm sorry, that's not funny. It's totally funny. Like, I was like, I didn't think I could get, like, 500 emails in a day. I was like, good God. It's not that deep. Like, it's not that deep. Hey, what is wrong with you, brother? I feel so sorry for you. I was like, God damn. But here's the thing. There were three people that, like, kind of stood up for me. One was Juba Kalamka, who ran this... uh, this uh, queer uh, hip hop group out here called Pomo Afro Homos. Um, mm. Deep Dick Collective, sorry, that's the name of them. Uh, D- Deep Dick Collective, Pomo Afro Homos. Uh, this woman named Camille AC, I don't know what happened to her. And Nalo Hopkinson, who is a black queer Caribbean sci fi writer. Wow. Uh, yeah. Nalo Hopkinson. And Nalo, like to this, not if you don't know who Nalo is and you like Octavia Butler, like you gotta know Nalo. Cause like Nalo's shit is fucking fire. Right. And like her and Octavia were friends. She's like, oh. friend, yeah, she's like, she was supposed to be on um Nalo and Octavia were gonna be on a book tour together right when Octavia died. Wow. Uh, but Nalo is like. I went to study with her at UC Riverside. Like, Nala's been the homie ever since. Like, she's my big sister. Like, you know, whatever Nala needs, she's got from me. And like, that's just, that's just true, you know? And it's like, that to me, like that relationship and those relationships, that was Afrofuturism to me. You know what I mean? Like it was, these are alternative Negroes, which was my previous term. <laughs> Right, like alternative Negroes. Yes, alternative Negroes um, involved in science and science fiction, but like who actually give a shit about each other. Ooh, you know what I mean, always so, was an acronym for something. <laughs> I know you. You spell it out. I can't do it. <laughs> yeah. 
Wow. But yeah, so that's, so that's how I like got into it. And then, you know, if you're writing weird shit and you're Black, it's probably going to be called Afrofuturism. <laughs> or Afro-surrealism, or, you know what I mean? Like, um, if you're writing weird shit and you're Black, yeah, you fit in. Blackness yeah. is always cool. I hope so. Inherently. That's like, that's like Even if me, you're a Black nerd, you're cool. Like, you're cooler than a white nerd. That's what I mean. I mean, but it's like, I've always, like, I've always felt like my nerdy side was cool as hell. Like, nerds have swag. Black nerds have swag, in my opinion. I gave it up. I was like, I don't, I was like, I can't think about what y'all think of me, ever. That's where the swag comes from. Because you don't care. Some folks are, like, all about it. And so, like, they got their thing and da-da-da-da. I was like, I, I Oh, you know, your gear is fucked up. I'm like, I know. They're like, all right, look. I'm like, I don't, how you be hollering? I'm like, I'm, I don't. Like, I just, like, I'm just like, I'm just me. I'm doing my thing. I'm like reading. I'm writing weird shit. Like, mm-hmm. I'm cooking. Like, I'm hanging out with the dogs. Like, I'm, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not trying to impress anyone because I don't know how to do it. And I don't have time to think about that. Like, it's mm-hmm. the, the, cost-benefit analysis doesn't work for me. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, if it's like, by the end of the day, if I put all this energy in and five people think I'm cool, but I never see them again, I'm like, mm-hmm. fuck that. I could have been writing a novel. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So like, I never, to this day, like, I don't, I don't give a shit about cool. I don't give mm-hmm. a shit about like, what's hype. Like, what I, I just remember there's a lot of people lying a lot. A lot of people like, oh, gangster, gangster, gangster. I'm like, really, homie? Cause like, mm-hmm. I know, like I I know you you're not you're not a gangster like you know what I mean like all like hard at you know this is back when every black per, every black dude had to be hard and I was like mm-hmm. dude your mom does your laundry like I can't like I hear you mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. oh where my clean shirt no, I, that's not that's not gangster you know like I I know what gangster looks like I know what that shit feels like I know when mm-hmm. those press and I know when you press you ain't pressing you know what mm. I mean so like I just never got into it and young mm-hmm. and then I was such a alterno negro I was going back and forth to a fucking Humboldt County California and Morocco and you know doing all these like being in all these weird places being in all these like white spaces and being on these like alternative things that like I remember I started working in juvenile hall this kid was like oh my yeah, this kid was like, yo, man, I don't even know what any of that is. <laughs> like, he just had nothing for me. He was like, the fuck is you? <laughs> like, what do you mean? He's like, the fuck? I mean, like, nah, he was I'm like, like I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to mess with you because <laughs> he was just you clearly don't give a damn. This is what he said. It was the funny. He's like, yo, did you get adopted by white people or something? I'm like, but just be real. I was like, no, my guy. Like, I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> like, I heard got blonde hair and I don't know I was like he's okay vibing. he just he couldn't figure it out I mean we ended up being cool but like that was mm-hmm. the thing like yes with a lot of those kids especially in juvie, juvie they didn't have any mm-hmm. idea that they could be something more than what they saw mm-hmm. you know and I was like okay well if nothing else you're seeing something different mm-hmm. um I guess we'll just kind of starting to transition out, but what we like to do is uh, ask people some 
it's generally like rapid fire questions about their experience with cannabis it's given like you know the theme of this podcast and everything and um you know kind of bringing it back to that all right first and foremost do you have a favorite strain no you don't it's it's marketing uh how how would you describe like the way you partake like uh you know do you typically like smoke or vape is there a certain time that you could consume all edible um Mm. nowadays usually at night um sometimes i cook with it Mm. Um, or what do you cook with it yeah once you infuse that oil like you can pretty much do anything yeah um my my favorite is basting a, a chicken and then um yeah, wow yeah. we yeah. chicken oh you eating good that's what i'm saying right and, you just, and it's like just part of the meal like and you don't you don't have to chip out oh actually you know what my favorite i was in morocco one time and uh had this cookie and it was like hash pressed like super super thin so like thin sheet mm-hmm. powdered mm-hmm. sugar honey sesame seeds poppy seeds and then um beef uh basically hash uh top of put on top of it mm-hmm. man i thought i was supposed to have that whole cookie my friends were like dude that was a cookie for everybody all i can say is that i woke up three days later i didn't remember going to sleep straight hash just straight hash just straight but that shit was so good it didn't even taste funky yeah so that was my favorite, but I'm not doing that. Well, maybe a nibbles. <laughs> <laughs> like, I tried again. Like, I feel like if you ever had a bad edible experience and you know you took too much, like, it's like, eh, I want to try it again. I'll just try less next time. Like, I just met my limit. Yeah. I mean, I used to run, um, I used to run weed brownies for this lady in um, San Francisco that would... Mm. Uh, do free weed uh, edibles for folks with HIV. Um, oh and, wow! Yeah, and she, she and you know she pay me in weed brownies, and I used to just mm. call it HIV high because I was like, I don't y'all niggas must be fucking on another level to eat a whole one of these and then eat food after. I eat half of one of these things. So I'm crawling under the bed. <laughs> like putting blankets on her head i'm still like it's too dark it's too light it's too light like i'm i, I can't get hiv high. Mm-hmm. and this is this is the second time we're talking about hiv and marijuana this season we were talking about it with my friend and jorge and like the preseason opener and just the like that the community's most affected by both like HIV and both marijuana policy activism, the war on drugs, et cetera, being so intertwined. Like, it's like you can't pay attention to one issue without paying attention to another. So, this, I hate to keep bringing it back to psychedelics, but I've just been editing all day. And, like, this is my mm-hmm. thing with the psychedelic thing where I'm like, Black people are the most, have been the most impacted by the drug war in this, in this country than anybody else. Mm-hmm. So, how is it that you get to run this psychedelic, that psychedelic, blah, 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 whatever, and you're not including Black people as part of your liberation strategy? Mm-hmm. Right? And it can't just be like, oh, we're going to give some free fucking passes or we're going to like let... No, like on a fundamental level, 
you've got to figure out, okay, how do we reach out to people that have been told that if they do this one time, they're going to end up by themselves down by the river arrested for public, you know, indecency or whatever, mm -hmm. right? And that we've internalized that. That's something that a lot of people fucking forget. The black, mm -hmm. the people who turned quickest mm -hmm. on black substance users was the black church. Mm. They're like, we don't mm. want these crackheads in this in this community. We don't. Mm. We are sick and tired of these drug addicts. I'm like, you mean your cousin? Uh huh. You mean your auntie? Mm -hmm. You mean, I know you don't mean your mama. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's some work that, as black people, we have to do. That's like I'm trying to get in front of some black clergy to be like, listen, mm. we need to rearticulate our commitment to our community through substance use, mm. right? That substance use doesn't stop our allyship as community. It's something mm -hmm. we incorporate and we move mm -hmm. forward with. Because mm -hmm. we've given up on a lot of people that, period. We've given up on a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. We you haven't even given them a chance. No, not at all. Shit. Yeah. Remember crack babies? Were you alive for crack babies? They came, they were telling us we're gonna have crack babies coming through these schools, and the crack babies are gonna have knives, <laughs> and the crack babies are gonna be developmentally disabled, and the crack babies are gonna kill the mamas, and the crack babies are gonna be <laughs> overwhelming. It's gonna be us, it's gonna be an egg in the snake. There's no way we're gonna be able to deal with all the amount of crack babies that come out. <laughs> what does the science say? The science says that any baby addicted to a born addicted or to withdrawal system with withdrawal systems to a methamphetamine, generally within five to seven days, that withdrawal symptoms are done. Any developmental delays <laughs> that are done, generally by a year and a half, you cannot tell the difference. Wow. But we ain't screaming about alcohol babies. Mm. We ain't screaming about fetal alcohol syndrome, which guess mm. what? Is permanent. Which, mm. guess what, does have an impact that goes on for your entire life. Mm. So we don't see a bunch of white crack babies. <laughs> That's mm. not what we saw. We saw a bunch of Black children in neonatal care, and we were made to fear them. Mm. Right? Or we were told to fear them. Right? Right. So, yeah, this whole politic... Has to get reevaluated. Mm -hmm. Sorry, you want to talk about marijuana? I know. I'm sorry. I'll stop. No, no you're good. I mean, like you said, it's so all yeah. All the issues are connected, and like, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I want to transition out of that, but <laughs> aside okay. from weed chicken, yes. what <laughs> what other munchies do you what other munchies do you like? I got these shrimp chips that are hella good. Shrimp chips? You got that from the Asian grocery store, didn't you? No, I got weed shrimp chips. Weed shrimp chips? Cali, yo. Huh? What? Cali. Oh, Cali. Yeah, Cali. <laughs> what, what is, what's in them? Like, like fish? Yeah. Is it like fried? Or is yeah. it like dried? It's like the Asian, it's like the Asian big old shrimp chips, but... That sounds a little freaky to me. I don't know. Oh, that's uh, good. That's good. <laughs> I put that shit up in some ramen. 
Oh, okay. Now you're talking. Now you're talking. Okay, okay. I'm following. I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> I'm thinking you're snacking on it like, I don't know, like a chip with like some dip or something. You could too. I mean, yeah. Okay, I'm lost again. Um, <laughs> yeah. I okay. Mean, how about? I was gonna say, how about how about music? Like, what about like like you know music as you're as you're consuming or anything? How is that intertwined in your habits at all? Um, what is it? Uh, Saxophone Colossus is the name of the album. Um, oh, what is his name? Sonny Rollins. Sonny Rollins, Saxophone Colossus. Uh, oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty much anything that, um, anything Alice Coltrane uh, recorded. Um, Farrah Saunders. Oh. That, yeah. Alice Coltrane is like journey music. Exactly. Like, that's tripping music. That's good tripping music. Yep. I mean, it's <laughs> all like that connected to the spirit, right? Like connected to... Mm-hmm. Something other than the self shit. Yeah. Oh, that's why doing yoga high just hits different. Okay. So we're supposed to be doing. Instead of working, working so ghetto. We can do both, but it's like, you know, most other places on the planet, they don't work all year round. They'll be like, we we done for three months, but we'd be back. For real. I'd work towards fulfillment. Like, I love to, to put work in projects that I think help people. But other than that, this labor, just for the sake of labor, is exhausting. Goofy as fuck. Goofy. All right. And then lastly, is there anything that you like to watch or listen to? Like in terms of podcasts, shows, like other stand-up comedians when you're <laughs> elevated. <laughs> um, I mean, stand-up, like I just I love look, I love people who have a tight set, but I love going to people just working shit out. Mm. I am the best, I am your best audience member if you are just working shit out. Because I I am so gracious with my laughs, like even if it sucks, <laughs> like you'll you'll hear a laugh and that'll give you comfort, but you will know that that laugh means that wasn't funny. Oh, 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 and like, if you kill it, I'm crying, like I'm mm-hmm. I'm crying on the floor. So no matter what, you're gonna get a laugh because like comedians at at their heart just want attention. So I'm like, here you go, here's your attention. But mm-hmm. here's the like attention you really want if you're killing it. Um, so yeah, I love live shit when I'm when I'm high. Um, you know, one of the really thing interesting things I've learned with a lot of my journey work is like me being high is just me not being afraid. Mm. Like it's just like there's just there's just less or no fear and like just more access to joy. Mm. so like half the time like i think sometimes people think i'm high when i'm not i just I'm just in a good spot mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i feel like a lot of people are like that like i myself am like that and it's just because when you start to like 
learn how to access that joy that you get when you're high. You can like get there when you're sober. Cause it's just like, Oh, I can just not care. Like stuff can be really in a bad spot and I can still be happy because I just feel like being happy. Like, I don't know. It's like, I, just, it's, I do the yeah. not stay thing. Mm-hmm. Like when the shit gets, you know, like I'm like, oh, I could, I'm like, you know what? Not today, Satan. I'll give you tomorrow. Stop it. <laughs> Not today. Ugh. Okay. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for coming on. This was so good. Obviously, our interview went way over because you have done a lot of cool stuff and we didn't even know the half of it. Um. <laughs> So we just really appreciate you being on here. Um, is there anything you want to add before we ask you to plug us to, you know, your website, social events, and just other opportunities to connect with you? Yeah, uh, check out the Liminal People Quartet, Liminal People, Liminal War, Entropy of Bones, Heroes of the Unknown World, all of which are out now, graphic mm-hmm. novel, uh, Box of Bones is out now. Part two will be out in October. And The Last Count of Monte Cristo, the another graphic novel of mine, which is being put out by Megascope um, Abrams Press, will be out in April. So come and get them. I'll be talking at the Confluence or Convergence space put on by um, Psychedelics Today. Um, in April and in April 1st and 2nd. And uh, if you go to the MAPS conference in Colorado in June, I will be there with the world premiere of A Table of Our Own, which is our documentary about Black people and psychedelics. You can go on the website, tableofourown.org and see some footage we already have. If you want to sign up for the... um, newsletter to know when we're coming to a town near you or you want to invite us to a town near you thanks be happy to come and show our film and click and join with black and brown medicine communities around this country hey okay you heard it here folks all these different opportunities to connect will be in the show notes um as well as uh, your socials. Once we make our posts, we will tag you in it on our Instagram. Um, once again, thank you so much. This was so dope. Like, it's like with each guest, we always know a few things that we're interested in exploring about them. And then the conversation goes left, right, up and down. And I'm <laughs> like, oh, yep. Like, the diversity is trash rant. The amount of times that I have like ran that shit up with somebody and I'm like, yeah, and it's a new method of oppression. And I think the new racial order we're living under is like one where diversity is the cause of it. Like it is like, mm, mm, yeah, I'm just yeah. happy to talk with you. Thank you. <laughs> nah, thanks for inviting me. Um... Of course. Yes, my ear saying yes. So. All right. Um, and with that, I think we are good to close out. Mm. Peace out. Mm-hmm.